Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 1045 a.m. and 5 p.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. And what an awesome morning, huh? Aren't you thankful to be here? Before we get started, I, I just wanted you to be aware of a couple of things. And one was uh, last week we had just mentioned, um, brought some sleeping bags up uh, last minute to be able to show you some of the things that our guys from Be Bold do. I want you to see a couple of pictures of the event that they put on, the We See You Breakfast. Uh, and that's uh, intended to be uh, an op- a statement to folks that are living on the street. We see you. In other words, we're not looking past you. And uh, this was last year uh, when they did this. But um, because of your generosity this last week, um, they were able to purchase a bunch of sleeping bags. The retail cost to us would have been right around $14,000. Uh, about $2,800 uh, came in just that morning uh, quickly to Matt and uh, Josh, and they were able to buy 196 sleeping bags. Yeah. As others have come in, the, the total amount of uh, sleeping bags, I believe, that they'll have for the, the breakfast this next uh, week, and it's going to be a week off from now, or actually it's on the 14th, I believe. Is that right? We're on the 14th. Uh, I think you have about a 400 bags right now that are ready to be. Yeah, so th- there's still stuff coming in, and we are so thankful for that, but they have, uh, at least right now, uh, enough bags to be able to meet what they thought was the need last, last time. Uh, the, the cool part about this is the ministry is growing. Uh, the other amazing thing is this isn't just something that we do at Thanksgiving or Christmas, but these guys and uh, many of you are out with them throughout the year. It's just an opportunity we have at this time of year to make an emphasis. If you still want to help with that, we'd invite you to uh, put that uh, something in the offering box. There's a little slip in the seat that's in front of you where you can donate, and you can just write on there for Be Bold Ministries or sleeping bags or whatever it is that would designate that for that ministry. Uh, Also, this last week, though, we had an opportunity to hand out uh, 72 meals to folks in the community, and we watch people go to those homes, pray for them, um, pray over those meals, and I'm so thankful for you guys being as generous as you are. uh, We want to make sure that this is the emphasis, though. It's not just going and doing something that makes us feel good about us, right? Uh, We are going in the name of Christ because we want them to know the Savior, and we want them to know, we want anybody that we run into to know Uh, the glory of the resurrected Savior. We want them to be magnifying Christ, and we want them to be able to hear from people who have been transformed by him, uh, that there is a life uh, beyond the one that is distant and separated and empty. There is a wholeness that you can find in Christ. So if you're here and visiting us this morning, and you're here as a result of that invitation that was made during the course of this last week, man, we we welcome you, and we're glad that you're here. Um. We do have uh, a couple of other announcements. Our uh, senior saints, uh, we didn't get it up there on the video that was so delightful for you. Uh, On the 11th, if you're a senior saint, if you're 60 and over and you want to be a part of uh, this, we have a Christmas get-together. It's going to be at our regular time, 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday, but uh, we want you to be there. It would be awesome if you just told Gina you were going to be there. We got some treats for you. Uh, we're going to have some games, and uh, we're going to have a, an opportunity to be able to uh, 
Um, just respond to the Savior together with some hymns, some praise, uh, fellowship, uh, but we want you to be there. So if you're one of our senior saints, if you're just super excited that you get coffee cheaper at McDonald's and you want to come, join us. Uh, we would love to have you as well. Our senior saints are of value. I, I will say this. Uh, I I've said it each time, but the energy in the room with that group is, it, it equals junior high and it's just as hard to get control of. It is a lot of fun, and uh, not only that, the folks that are there have been praying for different uh, things going on in this ministry, but I will say that the last time that I heard them pray for our team that was headed to India, uh, I was so deeply moved with the, the way that they pray, the relationship with the Lord that it revealed, and I would just ask you to encourage somebody, if they're in that category, if they haven't been there, uh, you're missing out on a group of uh, real saints that are gathering together each Wednesday. So if you are in that age category and you'd like to join us, you might say, I I'm a senior, but I'm not a saint. We don't have, you know, any other group. We don't have like a, a senior sinners group, okay? <laughs> Just come join us. We only got a couple Harley riders. We can take some more. So we'd love to have you. Uh, also, th there have been a few of you that have been concerned at, at trying to keep up with notes on the screens, and uh, we've been intending to try and get those on the website. Uh, if you want the notes, the, the actual notes that I'm preaching off of each morning are being printed up, and uh, they'll be at the different exits if you want to grab those. Anything that you see on the screens will be uh, in those notes, and you can get those and, and fill in the blanks. But I want to remind you of why it is that we were trying to get to the Bible and this journal style uh, is we really want folks to be engaged with the Word of God on their own. We want you, when you get moved by something, to write out those things uh, that have been transformative to you so that if you're not at Salem Heights, if you're not in this place, you, you don't need us to interact with the living God. Amen? It's the Word of God that transforms the heart of the child of God. We just want you to be able to interact better with your scriptures with the Word of God. And so that's the intention through this series, is that you would gain some skill in that area. We'd encourage you, launch out into the deep, okay? Uh, you don't have to have notes written from us. Um, in fact, I would strongly encourage you, that's probably not the, uh, the way, okay? <laughs> We're just trying to give you some highlights as you're looking at the Word on, on how you can approach Scripture. So if you need those notes, they'll be at the, at the doors. You can ask an usher. Now, that said, this morning, it is uh, Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, all of us sleepy folks are going to get shocked awake by the passage that we're in, okay? Acts chapter 5. This is Ananias and Sapphira. I know. You, uh, some of you know it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm listening to uh, the discussion that's going on at the church this last week. I had somebody say, man, this is prime Cheaster season, right? People that only come during Christmas and Easter are uh, showing up during this uh, Cheaster season, and when they're just coming to church, visiting with their family, you're doing Ananias and Sapphira? I tried to back out. We tried to, we tried to find a different weekend for this passage. Pete was so concerned about it, he went to India. <laughs> but here's something that I, I would think, there's part of Scripture that we ever should apologize for, Amen. And when we look at Scripture, all of it is good, all of it is for our instruction, all of it is so that we would be transformed by the reading of it. And this passage, I believe, actually has much to tell us about giving during this season. What is the heart in which you give? 
Who are the people that see the gifts that you give? What is your intention with what you give? Is it to give glory to God? Is it a personal act of worship? Or is it an opportunity for PR? An opportunity for others to see how good you are, how wonderful you are, or for others to appreciate your church or other groups. God doesn't want reflected glory. He wants to get all of the glory, and he is worthy of all of the glory, and that ought to be our intent. Amen? So that's what this passage is about. I can remember when I first heard of Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, I can remember uh, it is the first passage in Scripture that was used to challenge my life uh, when our family had come to Christ. My dad had uh, gone swimming with my brother and I. Uh, he had found out, because we, ever since we were little, were just river rats. We were uh, Tom and Huck living on the river, and we would go swimming. And so finally my dad says, hey, I want to go swimming where you guys swim. And so we took him up to the place where uh, we would walk up river from our house and swim back down to the house. And we had just our masks, no life vests, no, just a dive bag. We would pick up trinkets that other people had dropped. And the reason they would drop those is there was a couple of pretty sizable rapids uh, between our house and where we would launch in from. And we would swim through those. So I can remember coming through the first uh, rapid there with a great big boulder. And we just warned my dad, hey, you want to stay clear of that because, you know, Aaron almost died there yesterday. And <laughs> we don't want to have to try to save you. You're too big. So... We come swimming through, and, and as he comes through, he pops up halfway through this rapid. He rips his mask off, and he goes, this is ridiculous. You boys get out of the river. And uh, then he grounded us for two weeks from the river while he figured out what we should be doing. And so we were grounded from the river, and my mom had gone uh, for some grub because now that we were just at the house, we're just sitting around eating. And so we had worked out this deal with my sister where she would go up to the street and she would watch for mom coming back down the road. And we ran down to the river because we just couldn't be away. It was summertime. We lived on the river. And so we said, hey, here's what we want you to do. When you see her car coming, ring the bell. We're going to sneak back up to the house, change, and pretend like we've just been lounging around. <laughs> so all of a sudden we hear the bell. We sneak back up. We think we got away with it. But the cat was out of the bag. My dad had figured out what had gone on. I think it was us soaking all, all the way through our clothes, right? <laughs> Wet hair. No, we haven't been in the river. So we get to the dinner table, and my dad decides to have a devotional moment. And he reads Ananias and Sapphira, and he says, Hey, there was this time <laughs> where a couple lied to God, and they were killed. Did you guys go to the river today? <laughs> and... I was ready to say, what? You know, like the minions. No, me. And it came out. No, we did, man. We did. Don't kill us. <laughs> and I learned then the power of Scripture in those moments when it says that these things in Romans 15 are written for our instruction that we would not, you know, crave their sin, that we would not run that direction. 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 15 tell us that there are certain stories written out that would be a warning for us. We have an opportunity to be able to read one of those stories today and to learn as we go into this season. Are you ready for that? Let's stand and read. Starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we're going to read through 511. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart 
And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Can you imagine that? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's an amazing act. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds And brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? But why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all those who heard it. The young men rose up and wrapped him and carried him and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether or not you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, read awe, came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Do you believe that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. Father God, as we pay attention to this passage, it is a somber one. It is one that is uh, intense to us. We love the stories of the church thriving. We love the stories of them um, seeing persecution and not paying any attention to it, proclaiming the good news. We love the stories of personal sacrifice. But Father, when it comes to chastisement, especially from your hand, it overwhelms us. It's unnerving. Uh, They're not passages we quite often take in in our devotional study. And yet you put them in the Word. So we ask this morning that you'd give us insight. Not only how should we understand these passages, but Father, also what it is you would have us do today as a result of this reading. Help us to chase strong after you individually and as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, James Boyce, uh, in his commentary on the book of Acts, talks about the fact that we quite often like to push uh, our guilt or our blame onto other people. Um, We shun responsibility usually by some form of determinism, he said. Determinism means that some outside factor has made us do what we did, and therefore we are not ultimately responsible. 
One form of this is environmental. I am what I am because of how my parents raised me. Or it's because I grew up in a particular neighborhood. Or because when I went to preschool at a young age, somebody didn't treat me properly. But we begin to deflect, we begin to push it off, we begin to blame other people. A little boy once said to his mother, Mother, why is it that whenever I do something wrong, it's because I'm a bad boy, but whenever you do something wrong, it's just your nerves? The mother had recognized that her son was a creature made in the image of God and was responsible for what he did, but in her case, she excused her bad behavior on genetics. When we blame somebody else for our conduct, in the final analysis, the person we're actually blaming is God. If you try to excuse yourself on the basis of environment, well, God is ultimately the one who's responsible for the environment, isn't he? If you appeal to internal factors, well, God created those. Whenever you try to excuse yourself for some wrong behavior, you're actually attempting to shift the blame for your sin to God. I just want you to sense what happened in you as you read that these two fell dead at the apostles' feet. And is there any part of you that says, what did God do? Is there any part of you that turns over your shoulder and says, what is going on? Is there any irritation at this passage? Does that seem fair? In fact, we rightly should say, if God kills hypocrites, who in here would live? Right? Is there ever a time where you did something just to posture, just to make sure everyone around understood that you were a good Christian? Hey, God, you and I are going to get right later, but I don't want them all to know what's going on in my heart. This is a horrifying episode for all of us who really assess our life. We praise God that we live in the age of grace. Amen? So what is happening here? There's a couple guiding thoughts as we look at this passage, because I think this helps us with not just chapter 5. I think this helps us with everything that's going on in these formative statements at the beginning of the church age. So first thought I'd have you remember, God reminds us of how critical pure faith is at key moments in salvation history. When we come to Genesis chapter 3, he plants a garden and the garden is beautiful and he tells them there's a tree in the middle of it that I don't want you to eat of. Everything else is yours. Everything else is for you. And Satan comes in and has this moment with Adam and Eve and tells them, if you eat of that, you're not going to die. In fact, by the way, as you read the rest of the book of Genesis, the refrain that happens most often in the book of Genesis is, and they died, and they died, and they died. He says, you will not surely die, but you'll be like God. You'll have God's glory. And from that moment forward, every decision that man has made has had some element of, why should God get all the glory? Shouldn't I get the glory? Shouldn't I be the one that is appreciated? Isn't this more about me? I'll give God glory if he deserves it, but I need to live. I have needs. I am most important. Genesis 3, Leviticus 10. Nadab and Abihu, the establishment of the temple, the tabernacle uh, worship has, has been established, and God said, there's a certain ingredient list I have for the fire pans that would be pressed um, into service for the Lord. So they would have these fire pans, and they would put an incense offering on the top of that, and they would put that into the fire at the beginning of worship every single day. And the reason was God wanted there to be a sweet aroma in the tabernacle when you came in. And that sweet aroma was the picture of prayer. Everything that we did, everything that we do is to be soaked in prayer. 
And he said, there's a certain aroma I want you to have. And you cannot use this incense anywhere in your homes. This is only for the tabernacle. This is only for worship. When you come here, I want you to see this picture of sweet incense as mine. And Nadab and Abihu said, you know what? God, they kind of looked at it like emerald, right? So they, they go to their fire pans and they're like, man, this is good, but I think I can kick it up a notch. They had their own ingredients because... They wanted, when they were in the tabernacle, it to have an even sweeter aroma. They wanted it to be spectacular. In other words, they wanted to announce that they were in the house. Not about God's glory, all about them. They offer strange fire, it says, on that altar, and fire from the Lord came out and, and killed them. In fact, they died right in their robes. It says that the young men came and they picked them up in the robes and carried them out of that location. The robes, the robes were not singed. But the men were completely gone. There's another moment. In fact, it's uh, interesting when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. There's a word that is used only here in Joshua chapter 7 of Achan. uh, And then it is used only once in the New Testament. It is used of Ananias and Sapphira, of pilfering what is the Lord's. In Joshua chapter 7, Achan saw that there was gold when they went into uh, the land. As they go in and they conquer Jericho seven times, they go around. God does all the conquering. God is the one that is at work. God is the one that wins the day. But he takes that gold and stuff that was intended to go uh, to the Lord, he takes it and hides it in his tent. And all of Israel is troubled. Finally, he is killed, he and his family, for hiding this sin, for doing these things. And every single time that we see this, Genesis 3, Leviticus 10, Joshua, it is at a pivotal moment in salvation history. God takes it serious. God reminds us of how critical pure faith is, but also there are rules for starting movement or momentum and maintaining movement or momentum. And the rules for starting a movement and maintaining a movement are different. The the rules for starting momentum and maintaining momentum are different. When you go up to a hill and you see a great big boulder, it takes some effort with your stick to get that boulder dislodged from the side of the mountain. Anybody try, any men tried that here, right? While friends were still down below? You know that once you get that rolling, it's different now when you try to stop it. There's kinetic energy. There is something that happens with that movement, and all of a sudden, the force that is applied at the beginning is not the same force you need to get it going down the hill. All of a sudden, it's moving. Different rules. When you start an engine and it's cold outside, and you see this with those older engines or uh, with a lawnmower, you have to choke it or add gas or... Uh, You have to aspirate it differently than you do once the engine is warm and it is moving forward and it already has its strength. Any teacher will tell you at the beginning of the year, there's a different set of rules. It's a lot tighter and the standards are stricter in order to get that place in order so that the rest of the year they can have grace. They can understand what their place is. It settles the classroom. There's a word that is used for power that's all the way through, especially the book of Acts, but through the New Testament, dunamis. It's a word that we get dynamite from. And I think some translators have actually, some commentators have done violence to the intention of this word by directly saying that it is like dynamite or explosive. They didn't have an understanding of dynamite at that time. But there is something about dynamite that is instructive to this text. 
In the process of making dynamite, uh, before Nobel was able to perfect that process, they, they had found a way to create the syrup, uh, the glycerin, that actually would become explosive. But what they found out, it was so volatile in that infant stage. As they just began to create that derivative, and they would have this uh, clear liquid, they would take it from a warm state down through, they would make it colder and colder, and actually dynamite, uh, the colder that it gets through uh, at, at freezing temperature actually becomes more volatile until they can get it down to this frozen state. And then they would add uh, diametrous earth is what they did for a little while, and then they added some other stuff uh, as they got more complicated, but they added some ingredients to it to stabilize it in order for it to be uh, handled and useful for people so you could go out, take it someplace without it blowing up in your hand, and then use it in construction or use it in something that is useful. They still use it in concrete work uh, even today. But this dynamite that they had would become so volatile if it did not have in its process a plan for stabilizing it. In fact, while Nobel was learning how to stabilize dynamite, they forced him to work on a boat out in the middle of a lake so that when it exploded, it wouldn't ruin any of the homes around him. Can you imagine that? You're out on a boat and the waves are going and you're trying to deal with this stuff that is so volatile, you know it could blow up with just one wrong move. They learned how to stabilize that. In the process, in the infancy of making something that is of eminent use, they had to be extremely careful with it. The rules were strictly applied. It is volatile at the beginning. You need to make sure that as we're looking at this formation stage of the church, that we see that there is something about the power of God that is very important and instructive. But as it becomes useful, we can handle it differently today because of the grace of God, not because there is less power involved. God is just as powerful today as he was at the beginning. Amen? A third thing I would have you understand as we're reading these passages in Acts is that metamorphosis is transformative, not normative. These are all words used for a change. The definition of metamorphosis is uh, the process of transformation from an immature form to an adult form through two or more distinct stages. Metamorphosis is the change from an immature form to an adult form in two or more stages. Cambridge Dictionary has as their very first definition, it is a change of physical form or structure or substance, especially by supernatural means. So a change of form. We see worship changing in the New Testament. Aren't you thankful for that? You no longer are gathering sheep or gathering animals and taking them to the temple to sacrifice on behalf of your sins. There's one sacrifice for all time, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We go to him and he is taking care of all of our sins. There's a transformation that happens. So there is a, a moment where this transformation is going on that is not normative. Some of the things that we see in the book of Acts that are going on happen during that transition, but they are not normal for today. There is a... Uh, famous picture, an illustration of the butterfly, where it starts at a cocoon and goes all the way through the stage where it has wings. Uh, it, it's used quite often because that picture of transformation is so evident. Um, you cannot help the butterfly at the cocoon stage without ruining it. 
But after it's out of the cocoon, you can have it land on your finger and you can transport it as far as you want to go. If you want to help a monarch butterfly get closer to Canada, you can put that thing in your car and not harm it. Drive it up to the border if you want. But if you help it at the cocoon stage, you will destroy it. There are things that are happening in this formation stage that are critical. Now, that being said, we know that the butterfly gets free and it's got a plan for it. But if you have a butterfly who always sleeps in his cocoon, now you have a weird butterfly. Okay? We're looking at the butterfly saying you need to embrace the next stage. We are in the church age, folks. And there are some things that happen in this transition that are explosive, that are profound, and that are meant for our instruction, but they are not for today. They are things that happen so that God would teach us great values, and then we are to go and be thoughtful in an age of grace. How are we going to apply them? The bottom line, as we're reading the book of Acts, is that God is just as serious about his holiness in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. There is not a different God in this chapter. And we see that in Ananias and Sapphira. So uh, that said, there's a couple of facts that I want you to see, and then I want us to walk away and, and be mindful. First fact, Satan attacks the clear activity of God. Whenever God is active, you will find Satan trying to do something to subvert that. Remember, it says at the very end of chapter 4 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Now they've come into this place. They've seen the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. This is within 60 days of the resurrection, folks. Within 60 days uh, to, to 80 days, you have the church exploding from 120 in number uh, to over 8,000 people that are worshiping at one place, and all of them are of one heart. How amazing would that be? Now, some of them that had come there had come from foreign lands, and they didn't have the money to remain in that place, but they still wanted to learn what they needed to learn about Jesus, and so they were all there. Some of them were losing their jobs because of their association with Christianity, and everyone says, you know what, right now, this is a unique season. I have money, I have land, stay in my home, use my property, let's sell it and make sure that everybody is okay. We'll trust God with our future. Now remember, they're living in the, time, the age of Rome. If you're cast out by Rome and cast out by your own people, that money wasn't gonna stay in your hands anyway. It is much wiser to let go of that and bless God than to try to hang on to it to bless yourself and lose it all in the end. So God is being glorified by the activity of believers. Whenever God is being glorified, whenever he is the center of attention, you're going to find Satan trying to find some way to sneak in. Let me say it this way. We have some amazing stories that are going on in the auditorium. We have some transformation that's happening right here. We do have folks who are meeting the needs of the homeless. We have people who are walking out of brokenness into wholeness. We have transformed lives in the auditorium. God is at work. Amen? And what you need to know is when God is at work, Satan is also active trying to plant somebody in here to disrupt it. Now, your job isn't to look sideways at your neighbor and say, is it you? Okay? Here's what we need to trust. God uses broken people. You're not going to be able to figure it out, but God will reveal it. And when he does, it's decisive, and it causes everyone else to think rightly.
Satan attacks the clear activity of God. And people like Judas, who was also a pilferer, people like the wolves that Paul describes in Acts chapter 20, they will get found out. Second thing I want you to see in here is that you and I are responsible for the consequences of our actions. You and I are responsible for the consequences of our actions. Ananias and Sapphira decided that they would take Satan's bait. Together they saw what was happening. Together they became jealous. Together they said, you know what, we got a piece of property. Why don't we sell this? Let's just keep the, the, the money. But let's tell everybody that we gave all of it and we want that kind of glory that Joseph slash Barnabas is getting. We want that kind of glory. We want that kind of blessing. We want people to see us that way. Let's do that. Let's be a part of what's going on. They sold the property. They said everything that we have, we've given to the Lord. And they decided to get the glory and keep the gold. That's what they decided. That was their decision. The bait was not that they had property. Peter says, hey, as long as that property is yours, it's yours. Even when you sold it. That money was yours. God's not trying to take your stuff. It's when you declared that you did all of these great things. When you put out the PR firm because you wanted the glory that only God can assign. You wanted right glory. It's coming to these people who are actually sacrificial. But you wanted people to know. He said that's actually more disruptive and more discouraging. That was the problem. Now, and I want you also to sense in your own heart the trouble that may be going on. You see, every time we read a passage like this, God is in a catch-22. We are angry when God acts, and we are angry when he doesn't. You know that? We go back to our baby Hitler scenario. What if God had killed Hitler as a baby? What would we say? Makes an evening news. Little German boy is killed, and all of us are angry, right? Why would God allow this to happen? So God decides, no, I'm not going to act. Let's just wait till he gets older. Well, now we allow baby Hitler to grow up and become Hitler. Now we're angry that God didn't do something when he was young, right? Why did God even allow him to live? We have all of these questions. And the ultimate issue is we wish we were God. We look at God and we get angry whenever he acts. We get angry if he doesn't act. We get angry if he does act. We get angry when God is God and we're not God because we look at God and say we could do it better. I want you just right now to elect the person in here you would like to run the universe, okay? Who is it? I want you to notice no spouse has spoken up, all right? We can't run the universe. We can't do things better than God. God is the one that is ultimately good and in control. Do you believe that? Well, if he's good and he's in control, then he did the right thing here, and we got to find out how that is. But if we're discouraged, if we're overwhelmed, if we're angry at God for his clear activity, when he's keeping the house clean, well, then we're worshiping wrong because we're worshiping God, not us. We're not coming and bringing God our glory as if he needs it. We're bringing him glory because he deserves it and there's nothing else that's right. Man, he should get the glory. He's in a catch-22. We don't like it if he acts. We don't like it if he doesn't. But the ultimate thing we need to see is that nothing ruins community like hypocrisy. We want the glory that is reserved for God. And hypocrisy, in essence, is taking glory that God alone deserves. We want glory for doing nothing. Uh, Dante 
in his Inferno describes layers of hell, and he reserved the eighth level of hell for hypocrites. Eight layers in. Here's a picture of a mantle. Um, in Dante's Inferno, what he has is a, a picture of all of these hypocrites around, and from the distance you see them in these shimmering garments. They are wearing something that is beautiful to the eye. But when you get closer, you can hear their groaning because all of their garments are made of lead. And for all eternity, they have this heavy weight that is on them that from a distance looks beautiful. But the weight of it will never be lifted because they thought they could bear it on their own. Beautiful mantles made of lead, a heaviness and a weightiness that they were never intended to bear. They bear it for the rest of eternity because they thought they were the ones that made beauty. When God looks at community, he wants us not to be hypocrites. Do you know that? He wants us to come honestly before the Lord and before each other and to live transformed lives. The only way that the Christians could be of one heart was there was nothing hidden between them. When we begin to hide things, it's because of our pride, and our pride will get in the way of that unity. It'll create hypocrites. The final thing I want you to see in this passage, though, is that you are not a church unless discipline exists. Verse 11 makes an amazing statement, and it's the first time a certain word is used in the New Testament to describe a group. It says, and a great fear, literally awe, came upon the entire church. Their jaws dropped says, on the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Church ecclesia is used to describe the gathering that is there. This is the first time that they are described as a church, and it was after discipline had entered. They'd seen the glory of God. They'd seen amazing giving. They'd seen great campaigns. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to declare. We're uh, talking about Jesus. We're even being um, attacked for our faith. They're being persecuted for their witness. That wasn't the definition of a church. It was when discipline happened within their ranks that they were defined as a church. A miracle is when a restoration happens to the way things should be. And a miracle happens in the church where they are restored to a body of believers that are rightly thinking about themselves and their place in God's kingdom. We have sitting here even this morning, folks who have been a part of church discipline. In other words, what they were doing has been confronted by people within the church, brought up to a brother, a group of brothers, or a larger group, and they were warned, you can't do this and claim Christ. And as a result of that challenge, they stopped running that direction and came back into the fold. They experienced transformation and grace, and they are not only forgiven, we're sitting here, and you can't pick out who they are because every single one of us has faced trials. Amen? Every single one of us has needed confrontation. It's not the discipline that's the problem. It's that we can't be a church if we just decide every single person what we're going to do. If at a country club they can tell you what to wear in order to be out there on the golf course, how much greater should believers say this is what it means if you're going to declare Jesus Christ here? You need to follow him. A church should have structure and rules, and God says, I take that serious in this passage. So, so what are we to take away? This is a heavy passage. It's Thanksgiving weekend. You're still digesting turkey and wondering, what did I wake up to? 
What is it that God would have us do? And I would say, what would God have us do in this season where we are going to be asked to give more than any other season of the year? This season where we are asked to participate in generosity more than any other season of the year. This year when we are asked to fellowship together with other people more than any other season of the year. We need to remember a couple of things. First, these things were written so that we would reflect. Romans 15 says... These things were written. Romans 15 says, Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And by encouragement, he says, by the Scriptures telling you this is the way you should go and pushing you that direction... You should follow. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. That's the goal. They were written so that we would reflect. What is it that you need to address? That if God were to come in and say, you know what? We're going to do Acts chapter 5 once again. Let's all meet. What would be the issue in your heart? You would say, oh no, Lord, you know I've made this commitment. I visibly have made this declaration. I, in front of a group of people, have declared this is the kind of person I am. These are the kind of things that I value. This is what it is that that is uh, my greatest calling before God. And yet, in your heart, you haven't lived that out. In fact, that's not who you are at all. What is the area that you need to address before the Lord this week? Uh, We had uh, family come for Thanksgiving. And while they were getting ready to come, they had some car trouble. And what they discovered when they looked under the hood, they thought that there was any number of problems with the engine, but what they discovered was there was a bunch of corrosion over the battery cable, big pile of corrosion. So as they take that battery cable off and they cleaned it, they got rid of all of the corrosion, put it back down there and tightened it up, the car starts up and they're able to drive. In fact, it drives fine for the entire weekend. A little bit of corrosion can destroy the spark. A little bit of corrosion can destroy the spark. What is it in your life, just that little bit of corrosion that you're allowing to go and the whole engine is beginning to fail because you're not looking at God the right way? You can't get started at the beginning because of one hypocritical area. Here's what we, we have before God. We have a promise. God promises to forgive all those who ask. 1 John 1, 9 says that If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We live in an age of grace. If there is something in your life that is between you and the Lord and killing that spark of faith, you give it to him. If you've come in here and you're just seeking, you're wondering what it is uh, that you can do, you just go before God, you give your life to Christ. He says, I take care of all of your sin debt. Everything that's between you and the living God will be erased if you put your faith in Christ. He promises forgiveness for every sin. But finally, God has called us to a reverential awe. He's called us to a reverential awe. And the question this morning is, how serious are you about pleasing God? Now, I'm aware it's Thanksgiving weekend, all right? But we ought to give thanks that we serve a risen Savior who has taken care of our penalty. We ought to give thanks that we live in an age of grace. 
And we ought to give thanks that today, if there's anything between us and the Lord, we can just confess it and he erases it. Amen? But we ought to take that serious. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us today to live as believers who are sold out. This season, we're going to be asked to give. This season, we're going to be asked to put you on display. This season, we're going to be asked to do many things. Father, I pray that you would help us not to be hypocrites in that, not to declare that we have done things that we haven't, not to participate in things only to put on an outer shell, but having no inner momentum, having nothing on the inside that proclaims you. Father, we pray that you would cleanse us as a church. Your name is going out because of folks in this auditorium. You are being declared in our city by people who are transformed. Father, we pray that you would help us to avoid giving Satan a handle. Help us to run strong after you. And I pray, Father, that you would make us thankful citizens, the kind of believers um, that others are around and they say there is transformative grace in their life. They are a person of peace. Father, we pray that you would use us, cleanse us, give us a sense of reverential awe today because we've done right business with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.